0: You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit AscendKC.org. Let's turn on our Bibles to Revelation 8, and if you don't have a Bible, you can find Revelation 8 in the Bibles in the seats in front of you on page 1032. I want to read the passage I want you to see, as I read it, the repetition and see an unexpected topic, the topic of prayer embedded in this passage. As I do, I hope you will be asking questions of the text. I hope you will be asking, why did John repeat the terms and the phrases that he did? I hope you'll be asking questions of the text. Why did John jump from trumpets to prayers and then back to trumpets? I hope you'll be asking questions of the text that I pray through the preaching of his word will be answered. Revelation 8, beginning in verse 1, the apostle John writes, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet. "'A third of the waters became wormwood, "'and many people died from the water "'because it was made bitter. "'The fourth angel blew his trumpet, "'and a third of the sun was struck, "'and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, "'so that a third of their light might be darkened, "'and a third of the day might be kept from shining, "'and likewise a third of the night. "'Then I looked, and I heard,' An eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Some amazing details are given in this section. Details that I believe are intended to be tied back to the six seals that have been unpacked. After all this is the opening of the seventh seal that introduces this chapter. And in so doing I want to show to you that I think John intentionally used details to draw our attention back to the prayers of the saints in chapter 6 verses 9 and 10. And when you look back at that prayer there is one question that the saints ask that I think is the point of this text. And ultimately one of the main points of revelation and that is the answer to the question how long the question how long is something that we learn very quickly when we're growing up don't we how long until my birthday how long until we get there when you're driving across country When you have the sniffles growing up, you want to ask how long until I will feel better and be able to play again with my friends. What you learn as you go through life is that your context in life affects the passion and the desperation of the question. In other words, when you're asking how long until my birthday, when you're young, you're usually content with pretty general answers, but when you're a parent... And you're asking the question, how long? You realize there is desperation in that question. How long before I have to get the theme decided for the party? How long before I send the invitations out for the party? How long before Amazon Prime will not deliver that present in time before the birthday? The drive across country is an important question, but even more desperate when you have to go to the bathroom. The desperation of the how long question begins to target more specific details requested. What mile marker will it be before we pull off? What gas station will it be where we get to enjoy rest? (laughs) The question of how long with sickness is greatly impacted by the context, such as the person who has cancer is way more desperate to get answers than the child who has the sniffles. When we ask those questions, the context of our life impacts our desperation, and our desperation will impact the need for answers. I think this is the point of Revelation it is to inform us the answer to the question, How long? Look at the big idea in your notes. The more desperate our asking, the more treasured the answer from Revelation can be. Are you desperate? Is your life circumstance such that the question how long requires an answer? Is your life context or the anticipation of it in the future so desperate that the repetition of how long has begun to seem exhausting? Well, I think Revelation 8 provides for us four helps to be able to guide us in our quest for the answer to the question how long. The first answer is, number one, that we must recalibrate to God's timetable. Recalibrate to God's timetable to set where we are in the book of Revelation. Chapter 6 was the breaking of the seals by the only one who was found worthy, the Lamb himself. And as he broke each seal, he reveals aspects of the judgment of God on creation and on humanity. The first four seals revealed the judgments that were assigned to four horses and four riders. They were judges, judgments affecting the economy, affecting life and death, affecting murder and war. These were judgments that were more general and they were limited. And then there was a fifth seal that was opened that describes those who were slain, who were under the altar. And I said to you when I preach this passage, I don't think these are limited to martyrs. And I'll show that to you as we unpack chapter 8. I think as you look at this passage of Revelation, as you look at the entire Bible, I think this is describing believers of all time who have faithfully conquered and endured till the end, that by faith have trusted in the completed work of Jesus Christ, And whether by execution as martyrs or simply living out their life faithfully enduring till the end, they are part of this group that is crying out how long. And then the sixth seal was broken and revealed to begin to pour out the final judgment on creation. So we would expect after six seals that the seventh seal would have been in chapter seven, and that would have been convenient, wouldn't it have? Chapter 7 is an intermission of sorts where one group described by two different vantage points reveals that God has sealed his people and washed his people with no one being able to change that. And he used the imagery of the 144,000 from the tribes of Israel I submitted to you last week. I do not think that's describing literally Jewish people. I think it's describing believers of all time. So is the numberless group of multitude that are from every tribe, tongue, and nation that have placed their faith in Christ, either looking forward, either looking at him, or looking back to him. And then we arrive at chapter 8. And now we're back to the seals. It says in verse 1, the familiar formula that we found in the opening of the six seals in chapter 6, it says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal... What a reminder this is, that it is the lamb himself who is authoritatively administrating all of the details that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls reveal. It says that there was silence in heaven. Now, there are different opinions on what the silence is. Some believe that it reveals that God rested and he just stopped. Others believe this reveals that the seal reveals an empty page in the book that the trumpets and the bowls are intended to write upon. Others believe that this is the silence that the Old Testament refers to, and I submit that's where I land. You can write down these verses Habakkuk two twenty, Zephaniah one seven, and Zechariah two thirteen. These are evidences of imagery that the Old Testament prophets use to describe silence in the temple of God associated with judgment. And so I don't think that John is describing here a literal silence that occurs. I think he's drawing from Old Testament imagery to show that what is being shown in the seventh seal is the final judgment of God. Now, it is interesting that it says this occurs for a half hour. Do you see it in the text? And I'm just going to stop you from sharing with me your little joke that I've heard many, many times. And that is that this shows that there will be no women in heaven because there will be silence for a half hour. I don't believe that. (laughs) But I think the half hour is intentional. And again, there's a lot of opinions on what the half-hour imagery means, some believe that it's temporary, and it could mean that. I think that John describes this with a half hour because of the suddenness and the urgency and the unexpected nature of this final judgment. Let me explain it like this: all throughout time since Genesis three, God has poured out His judgment on creation, hasn't He? I mean, in Genesis three, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. That was a judgment. The serpent was caused to crawl on its belly. That was a judgment. There was murder that occurs in Genesis 4. That is judgment. There is judgment from Genesis to the second coming, Genesis 3, to the second coming of God. And so I think with heaven, they're expecting judgment to continue. But this is final judgment that is being described here. I think the suddenness of all of those patterns now culminating in one final act of judgment is sudden and urgent and unexpected to heaven. And what's also unexpected is this silence imagery. Because remember what has been happening day and night from chapter 4 to this point. We have been told that heaven, from day till night, over and over and over again, have angels and angelic beings and saints who are over and over and over again singing the praises of God. And now he describes silence. I think this is the answer to the saints' prayers in Revelation 6 9 and 10. How long? And I think what Jesus is doing through the pen and paper of John is reminding us that it isn't ultimately about the details and the chronology and the sequence, it's ultimately about God himself. Look at verse 2. It says, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. We don't know exactly who the seven angels are intended to describe, although... If you go back to chapter one and look at the end of the chapter, there is a description of seven angels associated with seven churches. And I think it might be describing them. Remember that I proposed when I explained the seven angels of the churches that God was revealing that God knows because the angels were giving him reports of what was going on in the churches. And I think these angels know what's going on in the earth. They're not deceived. And these seven angels, look at what it says, are given seven trumpets. Do you see it in the text? It's a divine passive. Whenever the Bible gives a divine passive, it is intended to draw our attention to the one who is giving. The one who is giving here is the Lamb himself. And so, as the Lamb gives the seven trumpets to the seven angels, we are reminded it is His timetable. It is Him authoritatively administrating. And it reminds me, in a, in a sense, of my experience being trained to be a church planter. I remember sitting in the conference room in Chicago, and there was a man who was one of the directors of our training by the name of Bill Molinari. And I used to ask Bill, Bill, how do I know that this in Kansas City is where I need to plant? Like, what's the number of people that will sign on? And he would just smile. And I would say, okay, Bill, l- let, me, let me ask you this. What, what budget, what income do we need to be able to know that the church will be viable? And he would just smile. Okay, Bill, w- when will I know whether we should rent a school or rent a theater or, or whether we should just have a tent out in the field? What, give me details, and he would just say, look at Jeff. This is my, like, Chicagoan. Look at Jeff. He'd rub his hair back. And he would say, you'll just know. I mean, if God's in it, he's going to make it happen. And I would get so frustrated. But, you know, the more I got to know Bill, the more I loved that man. In fact, Bill Molinari is on my Mount Rushmore of people who have impacted my life you have a Mount Rushmore? You know those faces of people, maybe parents or Sunday school teachers or coaches, that have influenced your life in a way that is measurable, in a way that only few people can. Bill Molinari is one of those. And the more that I've gotten to know Bill, the more I Began to understand his character, how much he cared for me, to understand his godliness, to understand his experience. It became less important for me to get details and spreadsheets from Bill and more important to know that he was there and that he was giving me answers. And friends, I think in a a small way, that's intended to reveal John's point in verses one and two that it's less about the timeline. It's less about the details and more about the who who's ordaining it. And beloved, I think if we can get to a place where that is our understanding and we recalibrate our expectations of timeline and the answer to how long to focus on him, it will change our prayer life, it will change our faith, and it will change the way we view Revelation forever. So the first two verses remind us that the answer to how long requires us recalibrating to his timeline. Number two, it also reminds us to reload God's resource. There's an interesting transition in verse two. We would expect, potentially, excuse me, verse three, that verse three would reveal the first trumpet. But it doesn't, does it? There's more symbolism that's given here. It says another angel came and stood at the altar. And I think what John is doing here is he's tying us back to the last mention of an altar. Which, where was it? Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says a golden censer was in his hand and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Where was the mention of the prayers of the saints? Back in chapter 4, 5, and 6, it says, The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. I think it's interesting that John is tying what's about to unfold as well as the seven seals back to the prayers of the saints. Now, I told you before, I don't think these are martyrs that occur during the last seven years of all time. I think these are believers of all time. And and I would show that by drawing your attention to verse three. That says the angel is offering with the prayers of all the saints, and he's talking about the throne and the altar. I, I think John is showing us that the group in verses nine and 10 in chapter six are believers of all time. Remember I showed you when I preached through Revelation 6 that the word slaughter, all those who have been killed, all those who have been slaughtered, is not always referring to people who were martyred and executed. Romans eight thirty-six is a quote of the Apostle Paul where he says, we are being slaughtered, same verb, all day. Well, that doesn't mean that Paul was, had been executed. He was still alive. The point in Revelation 6, 9, and 10 is that believers of all time, because of their faith, are persecuted throughout their lives. Some of them do lose their lives, but all of them are persecuted, living in a fallen world system, working to uphold the righteous standard of God. So these are the prayers of all the saints. All of them are asking how long, and it draws our attention to prayer. So you can imagine that original audience probably heard this and would say, Yes, we agree with those saints. We are asking the same thing how long? But instead of metrics and details and timing, John provides symbolism. Let me ask you this question. What how long prayers are you asking for? What how long prayers have you been asking for recently? Is it the healing of a loved one? Is it the getting of a new job? Is it that you'll get a raise? Is it that you have clarity for the future? Is it that your grief will subside? What, what how long prayers are you praying Maybe they're more general. Maybe you just look at humanity, and you would say, God, how long will you continue to allow miscarriages? God, how long will you allow unborn children to be killed? God, how long will you cause, allow the righteous standard of what marriage looks like and gender and sexuality looks like to be the law of the land? How long will you allow the oppression of the helpless, the abuse and the human trafficking. Maybe those are your how-long prayers. God draws our attention, I think, in these two verses that seem to be out of place. Scholars have argued for generations that these verses are out of place, but I think they are not, and I think they're intentional. Because before he unpacks the trumpets, I think he's drawing attention to prayer and explaining a theology of prayer. Listen to what Jim Hamilton says in his commentary on Revelation. The seven trumpets are not blown until the prayers rise up before God. What an amazing statement this is. It's interesting that the saints in Revelation 6, 9, and 10 declare the character of God, don't they, before they ask the question. They say, sovereign Lord. In my experience, there is no other attribute of God that will stretch us, that will deepen us, that will raise us to new heights of awe over God than the attribute of his sovereignty. If you've been here at Ascend for any stretch of time, you know that I believe the Bible teaches God's sovereignty, but not a sovereignty that simply means he knows all things. If sovereignty only means that he knows everything that is going to happen, and as a passive observer, he sits on his high mountain, and he can have a good view, all that means is he has an amazing view. But when you begin to see that God's word says he ordains the details of all of history... Now that's something different. That will cause us to stop in awe and as Job, put our hand over our mouth. But the challenge with God's sovereignty, if he does, and I believe he does, ordain all things, then the question is often asked, why pray? And I think that's some of what these three verses are explaining. Let me give you three applications of what I think the symbolism verses three through five is teaching us about prayer. Number one, God is pleased by his people praying. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Then are you doing it? Looking at the mirror of scripture when I ask you that, am I doing it? I had a good conversation with my wife this morning that stretched me and she said, are you praying? We're, we're in a season of our life where our pace is frenetic. Maybe you can relate to that. And she says, are you praying? And, and the answer to that question is yes. I am intentionally praying. I'm, I'm praying probably more now than I have in many other seasons of my life. But she moved me beyond the activity of prayer to ask me, what is the quality of my prayer? And I think that's what this passage is also showing. This is not just a duty, Beloved. This is following the example of the saints in Revelation 6, 9, and 10, going to the character of God first, sovereign Lord, the one who is true. How many of us are investing in that as our prayer? Friends, when we are praying rightly, when we are following the example of Scripture, the example of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, God is pleased by his people praying. That's the point of verse the incense and the smoke that is rising up when you study the old testament and you see the burnt offerings god is expecting that smoke to arise and it is a pleasing aroma to him when it is done right god is pleased by his people praying number two god ordains prayers to be means to his end that is an amazing statement God ordains prayers to be the means of his end. So if God is sovereign, and I believe he is, and he ordains every detail of human history, and I believe God's word says that he does, then why pray? It's because part of his ordaining the ends is the means of our prayers. Wow. Part of your loved one that you believe will never get saved, being saved Is through the means of your prayers. Wow. What a motivator that is. Part of the end of God taking care of your needs in your life is you humbling yourself and praying Christ-centered, Bible-reflecting prayers. God ordains prayers to be the means to his end. Number three, God often uses prayer to realign our will to his. Wow. Consider Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember what he prayed? If it is possible, let this cup pass from me." He asked for the cup to not be something that he drank. Yet the follow-up to that was, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. One of the greatest tools that God provides for us in prayer is the tool to align our will with his And you see that in the passage of Revelation 6 and in the attention that is drawn in these three verses to prayer. So I think what God is doing when you look at verse 5 is letting the saints know that the answers to his prayer is the judgment he's pouring out on creation. Look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer. And filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were, look at this, peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning. Up to this point is simply describing everything that we saw in Revelation 4, describing the throne. But then you see at the end of verse 5, what? An earthquake. Go to the closest mention of earthquake. Go back to Revelation 6. 12 through 17, and I think what John is doing here is tying the two passages together, showing us that the seventh seal is not simply silence, it is the final judgment of God poured out on the earth. See, what this does is it reminds us that we need to recalibrate to his timetable, and we need to keep reloading his resource of prayer. When we do that, the answer to his, our question, how long, will draw us to rest in him. Which brings us to number three, third help. Recognize God's invisible hand. There are lots of dramatic details that I read in verses 6 through 12, aren't there? But I want to submit to you, because maybe you're going to hear what I'm going to conclude, and it's going to be very different than what you've concluded, very different than what you've been taught, very different than what a series of fictional books has portrayed. But I would remind us that when we study Scripture, we do not study a passage in isolation. The words inform us, the patterns inform us, the previous context informs us, and the rest of Scripture informs us. And and when that is the case, I think you might see what the trumpets reveal differently than maybe what you have been taught before. I think what this shows us is that God's invisible hand is actively working in creation and in the judgments that have been poured out since Genesis 3 till his second coming. Let me give you three considerations before we unpack these verses together. Number one, notice the categories of these four trumpets. The categories are the land, the sea, the fresh water, and the sky. I think that's interesting if these are the categories, and I'll show you that they are, then I think what these four trumpets are focused on is God's judgment of creation. Number two, did you notice the repetition of the phrase a third? It just seems like all four of these trumpets have a third, a third, a third, a third. And just like the six seals... I think this is intentional to show us that there is limitation to this judgment. Remember the the seal that was the balance? The black horse that the rider held a balance in his hand and there was all of this economic judgment that was poured out, but then the angel said, do not harm the oil and the wine. There was limitations to that. Remember the fourth rider and the... Death, and Hades followed after him, and only a fourth of the earth was to be impacted by death, simply showing that the death that is poured out as God's judgment on humanity is limited in nature. Not everybody will experience that judgment at the same time. I think the repetition of a third here, once again, symbolically reminds us that the judgments of the, tw- of the four trumpets are limited. And then number three... It's fascinating to see how the judgments of these trumpets parallel the judgments of God on Egypt with the plagues. So let's walk through this and see the descriptions and recognize whether or not they are literal. I, I think some of you might have been taught, or maybe you've studied it, to say that when you see hail that is fire, that means literally hail that is fire, when you see that the water of the rivers and the streams are blood, that that means that the water will literally turn to blood. When you see in the text that a star falls to the earth and it is called wormwood, that that will impact the waters to be bitter and that people will literally die from it. And, and I understand that. But, but that's not where I land and I want to show you why. You can write down Exodus 9, 22 through 25. That's where one of the plagues describes hail. You can write down Exodus 7, 20 through 25, where there's a lot of burning that takes place. You can write down Exodus 10, 21 through 23, where the sky goes dark, and you can see that there are direct parallels to plagues of Egypt. But I want to draw your attention to verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. Well, that's not typical in our physical universe. It says a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up. But then look at this. And all green grass was burned up. And it sure seems like that is literal. And yet, would you write down chapter 9 and verse 4? The angel there is told not to harm the grass. If all of the grass is literally burned up in this first trumpet, then why in chapter 9, verse 4, would the angel be told not to harm the grass? And I think that is drawing our attention to the fact that John is speaking symbolically. Verse 7, it says that something like a mountain, excuse me, verse 8, is burning with fire and it's thrown into the sea that word like is often used to signal the reader that this is symbolic and i think when you see the ocean is affected the creatures in the sea are affected when you see the ships are affected it's drawing our attention to the fact that god's judgment affects trade and the delivery of necessities We saw that back in chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. By way of illustration, let me ask you this. In the last couple years, has anything impacted trade and ships? Interesting. Verse 11, a star falls to the earth. Its name is Wormwood. It simply means bitter. The term Wormwood in the ancient Near East was describing water that tasted bitter. In fact, the associated description was it tasted like death. The word burn in verse ten is the same word that is found in verse eight that is a symbolic representation of a mountain. The bitter taste is a symbolic representation of water, the sun, the moon, and the dark going dark, and the day becoming dark, and the night becoming dark is symbolic, I believe, because think about just the science of if a third of the sun went dark. I think what this is intending to draw our attention to, beloved, is that God is actually pouring out his judgment with natural disasters. And I know our temptation is when we see an earthquake in Turkey, after hopefully prayers of compassion and empathy, is to maybe say, well, Satan's behind this, or the evil one. You can write down Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He is the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle only with flesh and blood, but against principalities. So yes, Satan is at work, but I would submit to you that natural disasters are the expressions of God's judgment on creation. So when we see the earthquake in Turkey, when we see the tsunami in 2004, when we see hurricanes and famines and diseases and economic disasters and wars and death, the point isn't to ask, is this the tribulation? Is this the end? The point is to see God's invisible hand. But What is the purpose of God pouring out his judgment on the earth? I want to show you a little nugget. Would you turn back to Exodus chapter 2? If you grabbed one of those Bibles in the seats in front of you, you can find Exodus 2 on page 46. Page 46. This is the context of Israel in Egypt performing slave duties. Verse 23 During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. What do you think the prayer was? How long? How long until you help, O God, O Yahweh? Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. What was God's answer to that how long prayer? Ultimately, it was the plagues of judgment on Egypt, wasn't it? And the plagues of judgment on Egypt led to Israel's exodus. And I would submit to you that in a similar pattern, the prayers of the saints, how long, are answered by the judgment of God poured out on creation. Judgments described in the seals in the trumpets and the bowls that ultimately will be the unexpected and sudden pouring out of the final judgment of God It's interesting that the text says water into blood and it says hail and it says the star and wormwood and sun and dark and I respect those who see this literally but I think when you look at the rest of Revelation and the analysis of the rest of Scripture, I can't get there myself. And I think this is simply intended to show God's patterns of judgment being poured out over and over and over again and so that the next time we see a natural disaster. Instead of us getting excited to think, is this the end? We are simply drawn to see the one who is administrating authoritatively every detail of redemptive history. So we remember God's invisible hand, but then we move to number four. We remember God's control, and that's verse 13. It says, then I looked and I heard. Now, what's interesting about that is up to this point, the typical pattern is that John either hears or sees. And so I think what John is doing by saying, I looked and I heard, is he's drawing our attention to kind of a separation. A a separation that the first four trumpets are targeting creation. The next three trumpets are going to target wicked people. There's more symbolism. Verse 13, it says, I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. We don't typically hear eagles crying with a loud voice, do we? He's drawing our attention to a symbolic detail that teaches a truth. And the symbolic detail is that this eagle is flying at a position in the sky where it can see clearly. And what it can see clearly is that there are judgments poured out on creation, and there are also judgments poured out on the wicked, and that is what's going to follow. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a prophetic oracle of judgment. You can write down Amos chapter 5 and verse 18. Now, there might be people beginning to ask here to send, and especially people that hold more to a futuristic model. How can you say this is continuing to go on and we're actually experiencing this today because God's judgment is being poured out and God will not judge his people, will he? Yes and no. Let me give you the answer of yes. Does judgment being poured out always only affect the actual offender? Said another way, are there not ramifications of the judgments of sin that affect those who themselves have not offended? Absolutely there is. What you see in God pouring out his judgment on nature even today is that Christians are impacted. And so in that way, God's judgment on humanity, God's judgment on the earth impacts Christians. That's the yes to my answer. But the no to my answer is that judgment is also intended to punish, isn't it? And in that way, God's people are not experiencing judgment. Because after all, the punishment that is required for sin was experienced by whom? Jesus. So we will not experience the punishment aspect of this judgment if we have embraced the completed work of Jesus Christ. So as these judgments continue to unfold, I'll submit to you that I believe these are describing the judgments that have been happening for all time since Genesis 3 to the second coming, but focused in on the period from the ascension of Christ to his second coming that we also are experiencing today. Now, you may say, Pastor, don't agree with that. And that's okay. But what I'm hoping to show you is biblically how I got there. And remember how I've proposed to you that the authors of Scripture and Jesus himself have taught us to interpret Scripture, not just to read the text and then get to us, but to read the text, look at the rest of Scripture, get to Christ, and then get to us and when I do that, I lean more with this conclusion. So, four points of application from these words in chapter 8. Number one, keep praying. Keep praying. And not just religious exercise, not just duty. Keep praying the way the scriptures portray, the way the saints under the altar convey, the way that Christ conveyed. Keep praying. Number two. Don't fail to connect God's wrath against sin with the ravages of nature. Don't fail to connect God's wrath against sin with the ravages of nature. God's wrath on sin impacts disasters in nature. Number three, the judgments of God shout glory to God. That's amazing. When God pours out his judgment, he receives glory. I remember when I was at a chapel with Heritage Christian Academy, I did a question and answer time, and one of the students asked, if God is sovereign, then why did he ordain that sin would exist? That's a good question. And we can have fun going around and around trying to connect dots of Scripture, but the one conclusion I've come up with that I believe is defensible from Scripture is this that God wanted attributes of his character to be on display that wouldn't otherwise have been if sin wouldn't have existed. In other words, we would never know what grace is unless sin existed. We would never know what forgiveness is unless sin existed. We would never know about wrath and judgment. We would never know about redemption unless sin existed. So even in God's judgment on sin, It shouts the glory of God. Number four, when it comes to the question of how long, the answer is a little longer. And unlike the general answer of our parents with our birthdays and the road trips and our sickness, this moves us to a rest in his character, and that is the secret. Friends, the entire book of Revelation and all of the details, all of the symbolism, all of the difficult things to comprehend are intended to bring us to this one point, and that is to be okay with Christ saying the answer to how long is a little longer because it moves us to rest in his character. And if and when we do that, no matter what we experience in our life, we will be able to conquer and endure